Well, here's my first question. Do you think it's a little dangerous handing out guns in a bank? Did you know that Al Gore and George W. Bush are basically the same thing? Hello and welcome once again to Michael and Us. Uh, just, just a really good podcast. <laughs> Dropping all pretense I, at this point, yeah. late in the game. Uh, we're, you know, looking at the films of Michael Moore, the TV of Michael Moore. You know, we earlier tonight. Uh, oh, who are you? <laughs> it doesn't matter. I'm Luke Savage, and you are. I'm Will Sloan. <laughs> Earlier tonight, we went to see uh, the new Werner Herzog film, in, Into the Inferno, at TIFF. And, you know, it's just a really beautiful film. Yeah, well, yeah, sorry we're a little sloppy this week, folks. It's just, you have to um, understand that we went from spending a few hours in a room with Werner Herzog uh, and his and his new film. And also, like, 500 other people. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's not like we were hanging we, we out. We weren't just with... hanging out with Werner Herzog, but... Uh, Although, if he wants to, like, if he's a listener... Yeah, which, like, I assume he is, so, you know, I'd say it's, like, 50-50 we hear from him. But, uh, yeah, he directed a beautiful film kind of centered around volcanoes, which also took us took us to uh, Indonesia, to Iceland, to North Korea, and it was pretty incredible. So imagine, folks, uh, that you're in our shoes, and you've come from that, and then you watched a couple episodes of uh, Season 2 of The Awful Truth of you, Michael You realize Moore. you have to be re-immersed in the world of my second favorite documentary filmmaker. <laughs> but we'll get to The Awful Truth Season 2 in a minute. This was an exciting week for you, uh, Luke, because you finally uh, revealed the dark heart at the core of, of At Meanwhile in Canada. Could you talk a little bit about how this happened? Oh, my God. All right. So I did a rant for the CBC. Um for uh just like uh rick mercer exactly like rick mercer except i wasn't walking down an alleyway with uh, a lot of graffiti uh, behind yeah you. i mean i pitched that but uh <laughs> they but it was for radio so there was no way we could make that work now here's the thing this guy harper he's gotta understand that there's more than just cutting taxes <laughs> that is like such a bad rick mercer impression <laughs> i'm anyway, sorry i didn't have uh, any time to rehearse <laughs> uh, i didn't know we we're talking about this anyway so it was for 180 with the Jim Brown. It aired on uh, Sunday, been out for a while. And actually, before it actually aired, um, just the online of version of it prompted a meltdown from a prominent Twitter account. Uh, I'll say a little bit about what it was about. I mean, basically, I was kind of taking on this meme, which a lot of people have probably seen, where you'll see like a photo representing some catastrophe or something abroad some example of racism or state violence or something. Mm -hmm. And then there'll be, it'll say, meanwhile in Canada, and it'll be like two bearded guys on a canoe wearing plaid shirts or something. Yeah. Um, whatever. There's a million variants. Uh, the one that CBC Radio used uh, when they tweeted it out was a, a photo of a Mountie and a beaver. Uh -huh. And the Mountie is like writing up the beaver. And the and caption I, yeah. is are you stopping me because I'm black, right? And by the way, I think, you know, as two guys who live in Canada, I think we can testify that, you know, that is our experience of Canada. It's Mounties and beavers <laughs> and maple syrup. Um, well, the thing is, like, I mean, I know you're joking, but I do think if you come from a certain cultural milieu and background in Canada, that is your experience because that's kind of what's handed to you through, like, the public school system, mm. like, through a lot of our kind of state culture and liturgy and stuff. 
Like, you're given that impression, and um, a lot of people, I think, really internalize that. Like, obviously, Canada, as I pointed out, has a lot of really serious problems which get obscured by these things. But, of course, some, uh, some of our fellow citizens have perhaps internalized this a little bit too strongly. You, by the way, coined the term maple washing for this. That's right. Which is rapidly sweeping the nation by storm. <laughs> 1236, the uh, the email newsletter. From Toronto Life, I had guess. It, right? Had it as their word of the day. Yeah, I mean, it's actually two words, but um, that was yeah. nice of them. So the Meanwhile in Canada Twitter account, which is kind of like the Borowitz Report of Canada. But like not but even Not that even good. as good. <laughs> yeah. Um, Got very mad and, and said some nasty um, things and had kind of a an extended sort of meltdown. They kept accusing you of being, uh, well, you know, at Luke Savage, it's it's partisan NDPers like you <laughs> who are really tearing our country apart. You know, maybe you don't understand this, but but humor is a way that we deal with problems. Well, you know, I enjoyed. There were a couple of people who jumped in and, and sort of did the work for me. Um, like I stopped replying to them because at one point they said that they were like fighting important battles with the humor or something. Oh yeah. And then somebody tweeted back at them a bunch of their stupid memes yeah. where it'd be like a picture of a sh- of, of like a beer gut and and it would be yeah. a shirt that would say like. Um, I don't know if I just like beer or if it's the beer talking and yeah. somebody captioned it like exactly what battles are you fighting with yeah, this? It's, like, it's just like a, <laughs> a modest proposal or a Charlie Chaplin as Hitler dancing with the globe. Oh God. But what I really loved about it was, you know, I mean, like any sensible person, I think the meanwhile in Canada Twitter account is j- just a crime against humanity. It's just a fucking cesspool. And I just love that you know, every day is just innocuous, horribly bland, yeah. inoffensive bullshit. And then and then suddenly your tepid criticism of it, it was like, all right, the gloves are off. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, like, I mean, obviously, I didn't mention this like specific Twitter account. Right. I mean, yeah. I wasn't going after the Twitter account. I was just I was using the phrase meanwhile in Canada, which mm-hmm. is a popular meme. I mean, the person who runs it, I should say, like, is quite obviously like a pretty partisan liberal although they and would I argue think, that they're not they would say that that really it's people like you uh you ndp backer right well i mean i learned that i'm a i learned that i'm actually a conservative from this person which of course oh, is yeah. news to me but yeah i mean I, like, I think that also speaks to like you know like the liberal party you know has governed canada longer than anyone else and um you know a lot of the official culture and stuff i think is kind of for some people anyway it's like inextricable from that so to this person and probably to a lot of others, it's like adoration for like Beavers and Justin Trudeau or whatever is just like the neutral position, right? And and I'm and I'm like seen as like a foreign thing. But it, but it's also outside. putting forward that kind of popular ideology that's very popular in Canada and in the U.S. That fundamentally it's it's these partisan people who are tearing us apart, right? And right. And if we could just embrace our, our common values, as I believe Justin Trudeau's autobiography <laughs> right, is titled, right. Common Ground. Common yeah. Ground. One of the great literary works of our time. Yeah, and and the common ground is that. Um, the, co- the common, the common ground-, ground is that we don't have any racism here, and <laughs> yeah. that Canada yeah. is beavers. And- <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I know it's not quite the same thing, but I mean, uh, I'm getting his name wrong, but I guess it's Colin Cooperneck uh, or something. This NFL player who mm-hmm. has like just inflamed not just the right but also some liberals by refusing to stand for the national anthem. 
And honestly, like, this Twitter account's kind of reaction and a few of the other negative ones I've got kind of remind me. It's, like, the same thing. It's, like, the Nash... It's, like, nationalism that is so kind of fragile that if you just prick it very slightly, like, if there's the slightest challenge to it, even if it's, like, a kind of sardonic rant like what I did, or if it's just some symbolic gesture in mm. a public forum, certain people just can't deal with it. Yeah. And they get really nasty about it well if i can bring this back to michael moore for a bit uh before you you started i know i'm not accusing you but the line of attack on michael moore in a lot of these anti-moore conservative documentaries that we've watched over the last few weeks is they seem to think that if they can prove that michael moore actually hates america Mm -hmm. if he doesn't like america then that will invalidate all his arguments Mm -hmm. basically they think that well, Michael Moore is able to um, peddle his uh, evil influence because Americans think that he's patriotic and mm-hmm. that he loves America. And if you could prove that he actually hates America. Yeah. And I find that a strange line of attack because whether or not you love the country seems irrelevant to me. I, I mm-hmm. mean, to me, it's almost as if like saying, like, do I love my apartment? Well, well, yeah, I mean, like, I, I live in my apartment, so it, it's irrelevant whether or not I love it. One guy, what matters is that the toilet doesn't work, so you got to fix it. <laughs> well, one guy, yeah, I mean, that's actually a pretty good, I mean, one guy tweeted at me, like, all countries have problems, but I grew up here, and I love this country, and it's better than most, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, it's like, there's a lot in that statement that I wouldn't even dispute. It's like, I grew up here, too, mm-hmm. um, but it's like, that. I, I hardly see why that's even but relevant. Like, why, why do you have to say, I love my country unconditionally, like... Like you love your child. Well, and I think I mean, if you, and I think if you, yeah, I mean, to me, there's a kind of a base sentimentality that, which yeah. I just think is not good, but, um, and which is kind of a bit yeah. contemptible, but, but beyond that too, like if your reaction to somebody pointing out, uh, as I did and as like many others do and have done on an ongoing basis that like there are communities in like uh, North part of Ontario and elsewhere that like don't have running water mm-hmm. and things like that, or that our federal government still funds schooling for indigenous children much less than for uh, other children it's like if your reaction to those which are just like these basic kind of equity issues is like oh our country's great like uh, you know it's not perfect no country's perfect why are you doing this i mean i think that kind of reveals like the dark side of like i think what came out in this like stupid i mean i can't believe we're like talking spending this much time talking about this but like i feel like what came out in the in the meanwhile in canada account meltdown was kind of like you know, this is somebody who their the Twitter bio is like looking at the lighter side of life, yeah. and, and then and they're like they called me uh, like a clever little partisan spinner and shill, and like they got so ad hominem and like negative just at like the slightest provocation for with something that wasn't even directed them in the first place. I love that anybody who visited that account over the weekend, <laughs> hoping for a bit of the lighter side of Canada, hoping for 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 a gentle chuckle to start off their morning, uh, was just. <laughs> mired in this strange morass of like vitriol and hate <laughs> well it was it was it was fun um but listen we've talked enough about this <laughs> let's talk about season two of the awful truth yeah, what really brought us here the following program is a work of nonfiction, as sanctioned by the north american free trade agreement and the british home security act warning the use of prescription drugs while viewing this show may lead to dizziness and an urge to phone your miami relatives
as you'll remember from last week, if you listened, and I don't know, maybe you didn't, who cares? <laughs> the Awful Truth was Michael Moore's second television show. Uh, it ran for two seasons on Bravo and in channels in the UK and Canada. Last week, we watched the first four episodes of season one. This week, we watched the first three episodes of season two. We would have watched another one, but it's late. Yeah. And we get it. <laughs> there are some format changes from last week. You'll recall that... In season one, Michael Moore hosted the show from an auditorium somewhere in the People's Republic of Television, he called it, (laughs) but usually at like a university campus or something. The People's Republic of Television gimmick is gone, and Michael Moore is hosting it from Times Square, where in fact he hosted his first show, TV Nation. Mm -hmm. Hi, I'm Michael Moore, and welcome to the second season of The Awful Truth. Uh, It's great to be back on the air here, and uh, I know you're probably thinking, what am I doing back in Times Square in front of all these uh, big corporate billboards, all this free advertising. Well, folks, I have to tell you something. We gotta stay on the air, all right? And I know this is not a very advertiser-friendly show, so I just wanna say to the networks in America and Britain and Canada that are carrying us here tonight that I'm a new man. I am advertiser-friendly. I am for these corporations who are going to fund our show for the next 12 weeks. God bless America. And God bless every damn corporation in it. Otherwise, the show, as much as it was before, there are two segments, you know, linked by Moore's humorous commentary. Mm-hmm. And a bunch of little gags that are sort of strewn throughout each one, too. Yeah, so the first episode, supposedly it's advertiser appreciation episode, you'll see it'll keep cutting to ex-convicts in Times Square saying, I was just in prison for 18 months for armed robbery, and I endorse Colgate, yeah. or something like that. Yeah. So, as you can tell, the satire is a little heavy-handed. Yes. But I gotta tell you, I enjoyed this. Yeah, so there were some really good gimmicks in this. Um, it was pretty funny. The very first one was, uh, he's following Democrat and Republican candidates around in 2000 during the primaries on the campaign trail, and um, he's got, I guess, like a like a, a large flatbed truck or something with like people moshing to rage against the machine and he's challenging the candidates to do the mosh and like do the the crowd surfing like to dive into the crowd the thesis basically being that the republicans and the democrats at this time are indistinguishable right because he's going to endorse whoever actually yeah, does it there's no one to vote for so might as well elections are shallow spectacles so let's embrace it and uh i enjoy that well, and uh, I mean, you could say it's nihilistic, but yeah, but, well, but I mean, it was. I the think the occasion election. suited it. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and so hilariously, like the most like staunch social conservative in the race, Alan Keyes was the one who did it, and he's the most lighthearted about it. Like a lot of the other ones, like just storm out and or like they're not interested. And this became, you know, we see um, lots of newsreel footage where we see this actually became an issue, like. Alan Keyes was challenged in Republican debates on national TV. George W. Bush said to him, what's it like being in a mosh pit, Alan? Yeah, and, and you know, they were like, this music is, you know, this band, uh, Rise Up Against the Machine or whatever it's <laughs> called. Uh, you know, it's anti-family, it's anti-capitalist. Like, are you going to apologize to, you know, the police? And, yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's pretty funny. Uh, this also has a brief snippet that we would later see in Fahrenheit 9-11 of Michael Moore sort of meeting George W. Bush. He shows up at a George W. Bush campaign event and 
says, Mr. Bush, Mr. Bush, you know, from like 10 feet away, it's Michael Moore. Uh, would, would you be in our mosh pit? Governor Bush, it's Michael Moore. Come on out in the mosh pit. We got a mosh pit. We want you to surf the mosh pit. We'll endorse you. Go in the mosh pit. Behave yourself, will you? No, no. Go find real work. Hi, Dad. Yeah, how you doing, Mike? Hi, good. Hey, listen, I was wondering, do you have like a, an oil company you could give me to run or, or major, maybe a major league baseball team or something like that? And Bush, unlike a lot of these other people, actually seems to know who Michael Moore is. Because the other ones, I mean, they just don't really Well, George get Bush it. has seen Roger and me. Did you know that? Well, uh, how do you know that? Because uh, I, I heard this on Michael Moore's interview on the WTF with Mark Maron podcast. So take <laughs> it with a grain of salt. But right. Michael Moore's cameraman and cinematographer on Roger and me was Kevin Rafferty. Mm-hmm who uh, is a very good documentary filmmaker. He made The Atomic Cafe. He made uh, Blood in the Face. Uh, but he is also first cousin of George W. Bush. And uh, he was there at George Bush Sr.'s inauguration. And apparently, when Roger Me came out, the Bush family ordered a, a print of the film and watched it. Wow. So because of Kevin Rafferty's connection. Wow. So they've, they've and, s- they, and they took it to heart. Presumably and, they loved it. And, uh, and it reflects uh, in George Bush's politics to mm-hmm. this day. So what were the other gimmicks that we saw? Each episode, it would begin with kind of one segment that Michael Moore hosted, and there would be a second segment that one of his correspondents, kind of like a proto-daily show. That's right. Yeah. Uh, one of the correspondents would do. It's a bit like uh, the tone in this season. This season feels much more daily show than the first season did. Yeah. And it also has a bit of a kind of spy magazine or a private eye magazine feel to it, where mm-hmm. it feels like it's this like ragtag group of... Yeah. Uh, group of wiseacres <laughs> who are guerrilla style going up against the establishment doing goofy things so one of the correspondents i don't know what his name is but he's doing a bit i thought i thought it was quite good where he was pitting texas and florida against each other for how many how many death penalty murders they could rack up mm-hmm. I think this is one of the most effective, like, you know, 10 minutes that Michael Moore's ever been involved in because the segment captures in such a short time just how, like, sick and, like, sadistic the death penalty culture is. Mm-hmm. So they, having set up this premise that it's like a, a sports competition or something. And basically it's between uh, George W. Yeah, Bush Yeah, it's a and, fraternal sports And his brother, Jeb Bush. Yeah, who are, who are governors at the same time. And who are competing to see how many prisoners we can execute. Yeah, and I mean, you know, a lot of these gimmicks, the gimmick is that they ask ridiculous questions and then people storm out of the room. But in this one, you know, he's asking Republican legislators, like, so do you think Florida will ever catch up to Texas? And, and they'll be like, well, uh, you know, well, we executed three people yesterday and, and like we're, we're doing better every day and we're catching up, you know, and... And, and he says, uh, do, do you miss old Sparky, you know? Which is, the, which is the, like, inefficient electric chair that they were using. And, and the guy will say, oh, uh, definitely. I think the lethal injection, you know, it, it doesn't give the right sense of punishment. It mm-hmm. just sort of lulls them into a sleep. Right, and then so that is then followed up with, uh, he goes to Texas and there's a remarkable scene where people are actually publicly they've they've gathered and it's like a rally outside of and it's not a rally to protest the mm-hmm. the execution it's like a die bitch like yeah it's it was it's the a first, pro death penalty it rally. was the first woman to be executed and there's like all this like die bitch die and like all this these really 
unhinged signs and stuff. And when I saw the excitement at the execution of the first woman to be put to death in more than a century, I knew the real reason Texas will always be number one, the fans. Texas don't feel sorry for nobody. Not Texas. I'm just here to make sure she gets what she deserves. And then so they bring in cheerleaders to start <laughs> yeah. like, and they set up a scoreboard and then people are really into it. It's incredible. That night, everyone's blood ran Texas red. I like this. I said it last week, but it's Michael Moore's wacky performance art without any of the maudlin shit. Yeah. It's just kind of these short, uh, brutal little bullets of satire. And he's not even on screen for a lot of the time because he's kind of mm. playing host. So, And in fact, when we see him, I think this may be the fondest I've ever felt towards him mm-hmm. just as a host. Yeah. I think he's pretty funny in this show generally. Yeah, yeah I, would, I would agree. Much more so than last week. Yeah. So there was also the uh, the PD the pistol sketch, which is sort of the proto bowling for Columbine. Because around this time, the NRA was as part of their outreach efforts to make sure kids didn't uh, kill each other with their parents' guns. They released these cartoons featuring some like eagle eagle cartoon character who would do a little rap that was like "Stop, tell a parent," you know. <laughs> and so he had. You know, the, the gimmick was basically that it was a, uh, a guy in a big gun costume going mm-hmm. around NRA headquarters saying, hey, I could be your new logo. They've got a guy who's playing guitar and, and all the kids are doing a sing-along about like how great this gun is. And, mm-hmm. and like they're ironically being like, oh, don't shoot me. And like they're throwing up their hands and stuff. And of course, the NRA people don't take it very well. And then there are some other things. One of the episodes has a gimmick where they've set up a supposedly dead homeless guy just lying on the street in three different cities, uh, New York, Toronto, and London. uh, London. And they're going to wait and see how long it takes for somebody to check on the homeless guy and see if he's still alive. And I think London won. Well, London, London, I think... I feel like London won and then the guy turned out not to be British and so it didn't count. And then Canada won... Um, and yeah, and it's kind of a little, I guess, like sociology experiment or something. And, and there were a few of these that were strewn throughout the episodes and I thought some worked and some didn't. So one that I was less fond of was one where they set up two teams of like, it was team NASDAQ and team Dow or kind of, uh, very, various kind of wealthy people who worked on the capital markets basically. And then they would like compete by throwing pies at homeless people well this was around the time of uh, compassionate conservatism so yeah there's an episode that's the compassionate conservative episode where they picked up some wall street guys and had them compete to yeah and it's dunk for, the homeless guy. and it's for charity or whatever so it's kind of like yeah. the idea that which i mean it's kind of rhetorically is interesting it. but i mean it's it's um i mean just the delivery was kind of heavy-handed right i mean but oh. uh I, I would say the weakest segment that we saw was one where the issue was that there was a particular chain of retirement homes Mm -hmm. where I think there had been lawsuits over negligent care or abusive care of the old people there. The Awful Truth crew trained old people in Kung Fu so that they could defend themselves against uh, the workers at the old folks' homes. Yeah, and then they actually go to one of these retirement homes that's owned by this company and they put on a little demonstration 
And, you know, some of the people there seem really into it. And the scenarios they're giving are like, you know, when somebody comes and puts in your feeding tube and it doesn't work and then they don't pay attention to you. And then they like simulate punching the person or whatever. But I don't know. The joke is kind of lame. And also getting back to that old issue of whether or not Michael Moore is going after worthy targets. Obviously, residents' homes with negligent management are bad. But the camera cuts to these... These just random workers the, these, who are these like... These women who are working as sort of like nurses or like yeah. people who change who, the bedpans. Who, who honestly might make minimum wage. Yeah. You know? There's another segment that... I'm curious, how, what do you think about this one? Because this is another one where I thought the premise was kind of good, but it sort of died in the execution. Mm-hmm. It's one that's kind of timely now. Uh, a black man at the time had been shot by police because... He had a cell phone in his hand that the police thought was a gun. And then another person had a wallet that the police thought was a gun. So Michael Moore has set up a little booth in Harlem where he's selling Dayglow wallets to, to black people, which the police would not mistake for a gun. Right. And so the police start kind of, you know, circling the area while Michael Moore is doing this, looking very threatening. And Michael Moore is leading uh, all of these black people to kind of put their hands up where all the police can see them and And to turn in their wallets there's like a wallet exchange and there's and there's a part where there's kind of this whole horde of black people on the sidewalk as they slowly put their wallets down on the sidewalk and Mm -hmm. then put their hands up and then move back a few feet while the police watch them and i'm not quite sure what to make of this scene because it's not that funny. No. Um, but that image of all the black people putting their hands up and mm-hmm. putting their wallets down while the police watch them is an incredibly charged image. Yeah. And it has a certain charge in this context where it's presented kind of as a sick joke. Yeah. But, but I'm not quite sure what to make of it. Well, I think there's a tonal issue here with like that we've complained about before with Michael Moore where he could treat it as a more charged scene and instead like he has his like silly music playing over the top and stuff and there's just like a bit of a but then like he would run the risk of being maudlin and kind of sentimental or whatever i suppose but like i mean it's like in fahrenheit 9-11 where there'll be some really serious thing and then he'll cut to stock footage of you know dick cheney's face superimposed onto a cowboy or something oh yeah that was terrible yeah <laughs> so it kind of made me think of that even if the even if it came from a good place one thing I liked about these episodes was that they really are kind of like pre-9-11 episodes, you know? This yeah, is the last so. gasp of the Clinton era. This is when it seemed like, again, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are exactly the same, and it's yeah. the end of history, and yeah. what? And who cares about George Bush or Al Gore? Yeah. Did that resonate with you at all? I mean, it was interesting to see a younger, more fresh-faced Jeb Bush and interest, you know, and... Um, it is interesting to kind of imagine an election. Like, I think the 2000 election really did signify, yeah, like you said, this contest where the nominees for both parties were fighting within the kind of parameters of the Clinton consensus, which in turn operated within the parameters of, of Reagan. So there was just these ever contracting political horizons for kind of two or three decades resulting in this election that didn't really feel like it's about you know it was about anything and of course you know Moore um stumped for for nader um in that election yeah right basically under the assumption that nader would never win anyway so this is just sort of might as well try to build an alternative or something or just like signal a protest or signal protest yeah you're right michael moore would probably never use a phrase like build an alternative because he doesn't think in such sweeping strategic terms but let's talk about the Rudy Giuliani segment, because something came up in it that uh, is a fact that that I learned from you originally about 
the way that the sale of pornography was regulated in Times Square. So you actually know a lot about this, and you lived in New York for a while. Well, this was part of Giuliani's efforts to clean up New York in the 90s, where they passed legislation where, you know, 42nd Street and Times Square used to be have a lot of porn shops and porn theaters and stuff. But they passed legislation where a store had to have at least 60% non-sexual merchandise, but you could have like 40% sexual merchandise. Mm. So if you actually go to some of the few remaining porn shops on 8th Avenue now, uh, there's a place called Show World that back in the 70s used to be this massive emporium. If you go to the basement of Show World now, it's just loaded with old magazines and crossword puzzles basically to reach the quota. Mm -hmm. In this episode, uh, Michael Moore starts up a Rudy Giuliani-themed sex shop where it's 40% Rudy Giuliani merchandise and 60% like dildos and clitoral stimulators and <laughs> porno movies and stuff. Right. It was really weird hearing Michael Moore say the words clitoral stimulator. Just seem in any kind of context. That the, Michael Moore talking about the clitoris is yeah, a little much I, for me. I, I didn't like it. But well, I don't know. I thought he was kind of funny in this in this segment. <laughs> but it was a segment also that was sparked by the idea that uh, Giuliani while launching this moral crusade, was also cheating on his wife with at least two women. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, is what led to the suspension of his Senate campaign, uh, which was against Hillary Clinton, I remember it. Who we never heard from again. <laughs> and so I guess the, the point that that gimmick was making was that, you know, it's ridiculous to try to regulate stuff mm. in this way. And, and so they put, basically, they, you know, put Giuliani's face on all these, like, dildos and things and like, like that. They, like, blow and, up dolls and stuff. Yeah. This is another one of those issues, though, that I think comes back to it being a, a real pre-9-11 show, where these episodes have a lot of issues that we haven't heard much about since 9-11. Like, the death penalty, for instance, was a major issue in the 2000 campaign. And I don't think anybody's really talked about it since on a national level i mean has it has it really come up i think it was an issue in the democratic primaries i mean i think that um i think more of the democratic parties against it now interesting um, um we see a clip in this show of bill clinton saying he's for it mm -hmm. oh yeah i mean it used to be a much more standard position and i i'm pretty sure in canada the death penalty was abolished just through the courts but it was a very you know what it was a very contentious issue here even at one point like in the 1980s but I'm, I'm pretty sure, and I, well, I'm almost certain that Hillary Clinton still supports it. Probably. Um, yeah. It's clearly not a, <laughs> a central pillar of her campaign. No, I mean, I don't think it's, uh, I, I mean, you're right, I, I don't think it's uh, sort of come up as a as a big point of debate. But... Or this stuff about abolishing porn, which, um, mm -hmm. you know, I guess, I guess Rick Santorum made it a bit of an issue <laughs> in his campaign, but otherwise, <laughs> otherwise the Republican Party seems to have kind of ceded the ground on the culture war. Well, I think a lot of those things, too, play out at the state level, right? So they don't really mm. come up in... Because it's individual... Go I mean, one of the things I find so strange about death penalty and how it operates is that individual governors actually have to sign... Like, it's them who signs off on executions. Right. So George and Jeb Bush, I mean, one of the reasons that sketch is so effective is because they are actually personally signing, you know, these execution orders. And so the idea that, that there's some kind of, like, fraternal competition behind it uh, is just totally twisted. Yeah. Uh, it was also great seeing the faces of all of these forgotten Republican and Democratic candidates. I hadn't even heard of some of them. I can't, I can't remember their names anymore, no. but... <laughs> I don't know in 10 or 15 years we're going to see Rick Perry and he's going to be like that or uh, 
I don't know who else. Uh, Rick Santorum, or, Mike Huckabee. Or who's that? Who's that? Carly Fiorina. Oh my God, Michelle Bachman. Yeah. Even even the 2012 also rands are already fading from memory. Like the pizza guy. What's his name? Herman Cain. Herman Cain. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How could I forget Herman and, Cain? Well, I mean, we're never gonna forget Ben Carson. Oh, he's good. He's he's never gonna he's never gonna fade. What's it like to be in a mosh pit? Yeah, I enjoyed it. <laughs> that band called uh, the Machine Rages On or Rage Against the Machine is anti-family. It's pro-cop killer, and it's pro-terrorist. I was not morally responsible for the music that was playing as I stepped out of my rally uh, and faced Michael Moore, whatever his name was, doing whatever he was doing. It's about time we got back to the understanding that we trust the people of this country to do what's decent. And, and when you trust them, Sorry. they will, in fact, hold you up. I don't know. Don't Question. you think you owe an apology to parents and policemen on that one? I'll leave it to the American people to judge the convictions of my heart. So I think that about wraps it up for The Awful Truth Season 2. It's pretty good. I mean, there I, you've got a lot of entertainment options out there now, so I wouldn't make this yeah. number one. But <laughs> if they add it to Netflix and you can't sleep, check it out. So what are we talking about next, Will? God, I actually, I, I'm not even quite sure if we've decided yet. Like, there, there, we have a few options. Mm. We could do, I think, the last remaining anti-Moore mm-hmm. right-wing doc called Celsius 41.11. Right. Uh, this one has Fred Dalton Thompson in it. Oh, goody. Who just died, I believe. Yeah. Rest in peace. We could, uh, if we were feeling really creative, do kind of an odds and ends episode where we talk about, like, Pets or Meat, The Return to Flint, his TV documentary, or uh, his Rage Against the Machine videos, or his only real acting role, the film Lucky Numbers with John Travolta. Wow, so I had no idea that any of those things existed, so I guess we've got our... I expect you to We don't have to. Well, I mean... mean, Or we could, we could just, like, cut this thing off and do Where to Invade Next. Um, Because we're getting into, like, the real, like, the deep sea... The The Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, (laughs) I mean, yeah, I mean, like, I'm, I'm, I'm down for whatever. I, I think that Where to Invade Next will be, uh, you know, will be a chance to, like, I think that'll be just a, a, a really interesting conversation. I'm not relishing watching it again. We suffered through it, like, a year ago, and it's not good. But I think the reasons it's not good are quite interesting, mm-hmm. and I think that'll be a good... Um, it's a real summative achievement, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, I think having dug our heels in and, and already done so many kind of of the lesser things, I mean, I don't really see, like, either either this effort is magisterial <laughs> or or it's nothing. Like, so, what if, like, I'm just throwing you out there. We don't have to do this. But what if we ventured into the books? Oh, my God. Like Stupid White Men <laughs> or, or... I know that's a, that's a big commitment. Or maybe there are audiobooks out there we can listen to. <laughs> um well we can definitely do the movies we'll talk that you mentioned we'll talk about the books if if you're a fan and you want us to do the books uh if you want us if there's anything specific you want us to talk about tweet at us yeah. at will sloan ask at luke w savage uh thanks to everybody that has listened so far and has tweeted at us and and stuff it's uh it's really nice we love our fans yeah and so um until next time, I was Luke Savage. I was Will Sloan. Now watch this drive. Keith, would you jump in our mosh pit? We're going to endorse you if you'll jump in our mosh pit. Now what's the mosh pit? The mosh pit is the young people here. I told them Alan Keith would jump in the mosh pit. He's the only one with the courage to do it. The only one. Let's do it. Your daughter says do it.
You can go up with him. You can go up with him. Go up with him. He's doing it. 